Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, page 891. Last week, I, um, I just had this sensation that I was running a 100-yard dash in the uh, beach sand. Not the stuff along the water line, but the stuff back from the water. It was just a really... Uh, felt like a slog, a slow, difficult run. And so thinking about that, I've decided to, to we're still in the same passage or, or topic, you know, Jesus' prophetic panorama from Matthew chapter 24. I haven't completely lost my way. But I think uh, what I wanted to do is reorder the points of that sermon. So if you remember from last week, I said there were three facets to Jesus' prophetic panorama that we were looking at from Matthew chapter 24 and verses 4 through 14. And we looked at the first one last week, the birth pangs, coming out of Matthew 24 and verse 8. And then we began what I was calling the second point, which were the breaking of the seals from Revelation 6, or actually Revelation 5 and 6. But I think what I and the third point of that sermon was the Daniel connection. But I think what I want to do is reorder the points. And make the second point the Daniel connection and the third point the breaking of the seals. And I, and I think that that will make things a little more clear, I hope. So uh, if you're trying to figure out what I'm doing and where I'm going and you had last week's notes and you're saying, what in the world is that guy up to? Well, here's what I'm up to. I've flipped points two and three. So point three is now point two, the Daniel connection. Thus, your Bibles will now be opened on your lap to Daniel chapter 7. And what I want to do is to look with you very briefly at uh, Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in one sermon. In one sermon. And this will work out really uh, quite well for those of you who are using the church's through-the-year Bible reading program because starting tomorrow morning, we begin together reading Daniel. So that'll, that'll be good. You'll kind of know where things are going, hopefully, when we do that. So, so let me just, a little context to get into this. In, uh, in the, sermon, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, right, Jesus uh, teaching to his disciples there on the side of the Mount of Olives, following his his pronouncement of judgment upon the nation of Israel, recorded there in the end of Matthew 23 and the beginning of Matthew 24. Uh, We have a parallel account in Luke 21. We looked at that a few weeks ago. There in that parallel account, Jesus answered one of the disciples' questions. They asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming to the end of the age? And we noted, as I say, a few weeks back, that uh, Matthew does not record the answer to the first question. uh, It's recorded by Luke, and it's recorded by Luke in Luke 21. And there in Luke 21, Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple under Titus and the Roman army. And he says that uh, he speaks of that as the time of the Gentiles. Remember this? And we went back and we looked at where does this this, uh, unique expression, the time of the Gentiles, where does it originate, what does it mean and we found that it, that it actually originates back in 597 B.C. when the king Jehoiachin, also known as, uh, as uh, Konaniah, was taken captive by the Babylonians 
in, and uh, actually taken to Babylon. And from that point, actually verse 24, the dating of the Israelite kingdom is dated by a non-Israelite king. We noted that point of significance and said from that point forward, we can say that the nation of Israel has been under the domination of Gentile nations. They are in the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles continues. We are in the times of the Gentiles. The nation of Israel coming back into the land in 1948 still remains to, uh, to a large degree under the domination of Gentile powers. And we noted as an illustration of that, the reality that on their most sacred spot, the place where the very Holy of Holies once stood, stands an Islamic mosque. And so they remain under this time of the Gentiles. This time of the Gentiles will carry on until it is ended by the return of their king, Messiah, who will break the nations as a, as a potter will smash the pottery with a rod of iron. He will smash the nations that are in rebellion against him, and he will deliver his people and establish the great Davidic kingdom long foretold by the prophets. So we remain in this period of time, the time of the Gentiles. Daniel's contribution to this is that Daniel, through a series of visions given to him by God over an extended period of time, details the times of the Gentiles, what it will be and what it will look like as it relates to the nation of Israel. Now, Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 B.C., the first of the three captivities, 605, 597, and 586. Daniel, taken as a young man into Babylon in captivity, uh, ministered in Babylon for about 70 years. So the prophecies of the book of Daniel cover a period of time of about 70 years. And during that time, Daniel is elevated by God to a place of great stature in the kingdom, first of Babylon and then of Medo-Persia. So Daniel gave this overview of the time of the Gentiles and lived in part of this time himself. His prophecies are recorded for us in his book. The first prophecy actually was given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 of Daniel, and Daniel is the one who interprets that dream. And And the reality is, is that every prophecy to be found in the book of Daniel spins out of the original vision or dream, I guess dream is a better word, given out of the original dream given to Nebuchadnezzar. And it was the dream, you'll remember, about a statue, right? A statue that was made of four different kinds of metals, gold, silver, bronze, and then iron, and then the feet of the statue were a mixture of, of uh, iron and clay. You'll also remember that that statue was crushed by a a, a stone cut without hands that uh, smashed the statue and then grew itself to become a mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the original prophecy or, or dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreted by Daniel, forms the basis of all future prophecies in the book of Daniel and details the age or time of Gentile domination. So, 
like an optometrist, you go to an optometrist's office, right, and they do an eye exam. And after they've done the eye exam, they, they start to put these lenses in front of your eyes, and they say, is this better or is this better? Is this better or is this better? Pretty soon you don't know what's up, right? And so you're positive, you've contradicted yourself and said that they're both better. But, the, but what happens is as they begin to do that, what you see is that, that big fuzzy E on the back wall actually starts to come into a sharper focus. And that's indeed the way Daniel's prophecies are. They begin a little fuzzy, and they, as they are repeatedly given and reemphasized and more detail is given, it comes into a much sharper, clearer focus. So chapter 7 is where I want to take up with you. Chapter 7. And all of this relates back to, uh, to what Jesus had to say in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, Jesus presupposes an understanding of all of this when he gives his Olivet Discourse. That's why we're looking at it now. So chapter 7 of Daniel. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So Daniel receives this vision, according to verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, so this would be 553 B.C. Daniel now is about 68 years old, so he is an old man already when he receives this vision. This is nine years following the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So his son, Belshazzar, is on the throne at this point. And according to verse 1, what Daniel records for us here in chapter 7 is not the entire vision, but a summary of the vision that he saw. It's a summary. And in this summary, he sees a great sea, verse 2, and the great sea, and all of these things, I need to say this interpretively, all of, all of these visions, all these dreams are based on an orientation of, of uh, Jerusalem or Israel and then looking out from there. It is the center of the earth. It is the navel of the earth. It is the, it is the apple of God's eye. It is, the, it is the place where world history spins out from. And so Daniel here seeing the great sea, and so from an Israelite perspective, the great sea would be the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's what it is. He sees the Mediterranean Sea, and it's churned up by these four winds, and out of the sea arise four great beasts, verse 3. These four great beasts. Now, we don't have time to read the entire chapter. So I'm going to take you ahead to verse 17 where in the interpretation of the vision, we see that the great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So the four beasts are four kings. Verse 23, a little additional piece of data here. It says the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, be different from the other kingdoms, will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And so we see that the four kings are in reality four kingdoms. So you have the four beasts who are four kings who are four kingdoms. It's all the same basic idea. So immediately we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, well, who are these beasts that Daniel sees? 
Who are the beasts? Well, to a reader of Daniel's prophecies, your mind would immediately roll back a a few chapters, right, to chapter 2. And when you go back to chapter 2, the foundation has been laid for us in the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. So I'll flip you back there to chapter 2. Excuse me. And it's worth reading, so I will do it for you. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. You, O king, were looking. Behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of the iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, hang on to that thought, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whenever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused them to, you to rule over them, and you are the head of gold. So immediately we know who the head of gold is. After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, and then a third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. So obviously the silver is a kingdom too. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw that the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut, out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great king has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So, Daniel tells us about this progress of of, uh, future uh, reality, future history, now to us, at least a good bit of it, in the form of these four kingdoms. And I wanted you to note the fact that when the statue is crushed, the, the, the stone crushes the feet, but notice it says it crushes the entire statue, all the metals. The significance of that reality is that each empire spoken of here, the first, the second, the third, and the fourth, consisted of, of all of that which had gone previously. That means that each empire conquered and assumed and and consumed the previous empire so that the statue itself could be spoken of as as a composite of all of these world empires. 
rolled into one. Back to chapter 7. So Daniel now sees these four beasts. Four beasts, four kings, four kingdoms. The first beast in chapter 4 is like a lion. It is like a lion. I don't have time to spell it all out for you, but I'll just tell you this. The first kingdom is Babylon. It's the same as the golden head. It is the lion kingdom. Babylon's reign was 626 to 539 BC, relatively short, just under 100 years. The second beast, verse 5, resembled a bear. It's raised up on one side. There are ribs in its teeth. I think the idea of it being raised up on one side is that uh, this kingdom was the kingdom of Medo-Persia. That was the second kingdom, the second empire. And the, the Medes... um, excuse me, the Persians were dominant in that kingdom. Thus, the bear is raised up on one side. This is the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered the Babylonian Empire and reigned itself from 539 to 333 B.C., so about 200 years in the Medo-Persian Empire, the second beast, second king, second kingdom. Verse 6, we see the third king, kingdom, beast, and it's like a leopard. It is like a leopard, and this one has four heads. And it is like a leopard with uh, four wings. It is a a leopard that moves quickly. This king, kingdom, beast, is Greece, the third beast in the vision. Greece, the empire of Greece, was approximately from 333 B.C. to 63 B.C., so almost 300 years. This is the empire of Alexander the Great. He moved rapidly, quickly, conquering the Medo-Persian Empire in a matter of a couple of years. So this is the leopard beast. And then finally, in verse 7, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is the empire of Rome. This is the Iron Empire, the Roman Empire, that ruled from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. So over 500 years, the Roman Empire. Each empire conquering the previous one and absorbing its territory. Now notice Daniel says here in verse 7 that this, this fourth animal, this fourth beast, was like, like any, unlike any other one that he had ever seen before. Unlike anything he'd ever seen. Because out of it came ten horns, or ten kings, according to verse 24. Right? The ten horns arise uh, out of this kingdom are ten kings, it says. So the ten horns of this beast represent ten kings. They are like unto the ten toes of the statue in chapter 2. Now, according to verse 8 here in chapter 7, Daniel is is thinking about what he sees. And uh, and behold, it says, while I was contemplating the horns, verse 8, chapter 7, Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So Daniel is thinking about what he is seeing in his vision here, 
And, and among this, this beast with these ten horns, there arises an eleventh horn. A little horn, it says. And this little horn comes up and violently overthrows three others. Establishes itself. It has, it says, human eyes. I think it speaks of intelligence. And it, is an, it has an arrogant and boastful mouth. And so this king... That, that, that throws down three others and assumes control over this fourth beast, this fourth empire, is a very intelligent king and a king whose mouth is very arrogant and boastful towards the God of heaven. At that moment, verse 9, Daniel is then given a glimpse into the throne room of God. I kept looking until thrones were set up in the ancient of days, took his seat. So Daniel now is able to see into the very throne room of God, and there in the throne room of God, he witnesses the judgment and destruction of this little horn in the establishment, beginning in verse 9 through 14 here, of Messiah's kingdom. That is the stone cut without hands that crushes the statue and fills the whole earth. So Daniel sees this happening. In verse 15, after he sees all of this, he is distressed and alarmed, it says. Verse 15, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He is freaked out by what he has seen and he, he turns to an angel who is standing next to him, verse 16, and he asks for an explanation. Can you help me to understand what it is I have just seen? And so, in answer to that question, there will now arise an explanation of this fourth beast. Daniel wants to know more about the fourth beast. And so we see it in verse 19, that I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns are on its head, and the other little horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints. Uh, stop right here. When you see the word saints, it's not talking about Christians. Yes, we are called in the epistles of Paul, we are called saints, set apart holy ones, that's true. But this is Daniel. He doesn't know anything about the church. He doesn't know anything about you or I. He is speaking about his own people, and it is his own people who are following the God of Israel who are the saints in this context. And so this, little, this horn is waging war with Daniel's people, the saints, and he is overpowering them until the Ancient of Days comes and judgment is passed and the time arrives when the saints take possession of the kingdom. So Daniel is told that this kingdom, verse 23, will devour the whole earth and tread it down. So this kingdom will, will, will consume the, the whole earth. This kingdom also uh, arises out of the, the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire. So it is a confederation of ten nations that make up the former Roman Empire prior to Messiah's kingdom. Now, you remember when I said that each of the beasts consumes the one before it. 
Babylon was, over, was conquered and, and, and consumed, its territory absorbed by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks absorbed the Medo-Persian Empire. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. But a funny thing about the Roman Empire, it was never conquered. It never fell to, a, to another kingdom. There was no other kingdom that conquered the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire collapsed because of rot. And it emerged in, this, in the nations that you and I know as Europe. It's essentially what happened to the Roman Empire. And so when, when Daniel is seeing this vision, he is seeing a vision of an empire that crushes and devours the whole earth. It comes out of this, of this collapsed confederacy of the former Roman Empire. The, the little horn arises and takes control of the entire thing, and it subdues them, and it, and it begins to persecute the, the nation of Israel, the saints of the Most High. And it does so, according to verse 25, for a time, times, and half a time. Now, that's an interesting way to speak about chronology. By the way, it says uh, that he will intend to make an alteration in times and law. You see that? He'll, uh, break, he'll uh, wear down the saints of the Most High, of the highest one, rather. Verse 25, he'll intend to make an alteration in times and law. The idea here is in, in uh, Jewish uh, custom, Jewish uh, uh, um, sacrificial timetables. He will attempt to change all of that, and the nation will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. And the answer is, what is a time, time, and half a time? The answer is three and a half years. It is three and a half years. For three and a half years, this little horn will severely persecute the nation of Israel and attempt to obliterate their worship system, their sacrificial calendar. Verse 28, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Chapter 8 follows chapter 7 by about three years. The vision in chapter 8 is of a little horn which arises to persecute the Jewish people. But this little horn arises, according to verse 21... It arises from the kingdom of Greece. From the kingdom of Greece. It is not the same little horn that's in chapter 7, which arises from the fourth kingdom, which is the kingdom of Rome. So you've got to keep that in mind. There are two little horns here. There is the, there is the one in chapter 7 that arises from the Roman Empire. There is in chapter 8 another little horn. This one arises from the Greek Empire. And the one in chapter 8 arising from the Greek Empire serves as an illustration for the one that arises out of the Roman Empire in chapter 7. So the purpose of chapter 8 is to speak about a coming persecutor of the nation of Israel under the guise of a horn that arises out from the third world empire, the third beast, the, 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 um, the empire of Greece, and it will in its height persecute the people of God, the nation of Israel. 
the rise to power and the persecution spoken of here in chapter 8 in general terms is actually spoken of in great detail in chapter 11. So chapter 11 of Daniel's prophecy lays out in very precise, intricate uh, level of detail the, the career of this little horn in chapter 8. Now, just saving us time, I can tell you who it is. It is a historical figure. He is known as Antiochus Epiphanes, actually Antiochus IV. He was a, a ruler of the, the, the remains of the Greek Empire. You remember Alexander conquered the world as a boy king. After a couple of years, he grew bored, and he ended up dying prematurely. When he died, his kingdom was broken into four pieces, and each of four generals took a piece of his empire. Two of those generals are important to the biblical record. They are those of, of um, uh, those that, that controlled Egypt and those that controlled Syria. And they warred with one another for a period of several hundred years with Israel as the buffer state in between. In 167 BC, 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes committed what is known as the abomination of desolations. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and slaughtered a pig on the altar. That was the abomination that causes desolation. If you take a look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, you'll see a reference to it. It says, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation, or the abomination which causes desolation. This is a historic event. This is the historic event that Matthew, or Jesus refers to, Matthew records for us in chapter 24... In verse 15, where Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So this event, this this desolation, this desecration of the holy place was a historic reality that looks forward to another time when it will happen again. So here's the picture. Chapter 7. It speaks about a coming little horn who will persecute the Jewish people. His his reign will be destroyed by the coming of Messiah's kingdom. Chapter 8 looks forward to a future time for Daniel and his people when a Greek uh, king will persecute the Jewish people and will actually desecrate the sanctuary by the slaughtering of a pig. That is an illustration of the greater event that will occur as predicted in chapter 7. We know that the the event of the killing of the pig, the slaughtering of the pig, is not what Jesus is talking about because the event that Jesus is talking about says it will be unprecedented, there will be nothing like it ever again. It is a future reality. So that's chapter 8 of Daniel. It's an illustration. Chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. 
We're now in 539 B.C. This is 12 years later than the prophecy of chapter 8. Okay, so we're moving forward in time. In 539, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medo-Persians. You remember Belshazzar is having a feast, and he's, and he's worshiping the gods of silver and gold, and he's drinking out of the Jewish vessels uh, you know, from, that was stolen from the sanctuary, and he sees handwriting on the wall, right? He sees the hand, and it writes on the wall, and he's alarmed. It says his knees start knocking together. Daniel comes in and says that the prophecy is that, that your kingdom has been overthrown, and in that very night... The Medo-Persians breached the fortifications of Babylon and overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And so the Medo-Persian Empire now takes over. This is the, this is the silver of, of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. This is the second beast. This is the bear beast. This is the second kingdom. And here's Daniel, who now finds himself living in his own prophecy. That must have been kind of interesting, don't you think? God had given this vision to him of the future, and he finds himself living in the fulfillment or part of the fulfillment of the very prophecy that he has given, been given a decade or more earlier. Moved by these events, Daniel begins to search the scriptures to see the meaning of it all for his people. And as he is searching the scriptures... He comes across the prophecy of Jeremiah, which speaks about a 70-year captivity. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. It says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So Jeremiah had predicted the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel had seen a vision of the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire has just been overthrown, and Daniel says, Whoa, this stuff's all coming true. And it's coming true right in my lifetime. So he begins to pray. And that's what chapter 9 is. It's a prayer. And he, and he begins to pray that God will fulfill his word. Now the prayer begins with an extended period of confession for the sins of he and his people. As all prayer ought to begin. We ought to confess our sin before God before we begin to ask of him to do on our behalf. But Daniel prays And asks, in verse 17, that the Lord would restore his sanctuary. So now, O God, excuse me, so now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, God, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. He's praying on behalf of the temple which had been destroyed. He goes on and he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits on our own, but on account of your great compassion. So he he prays and beseeches God on behalf of the destroyed city of Jerusalem. He goes on in verse 19, and he beseeches God on behalf of God's people. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel requests of God three things. 
He calls out for God to restore the temple, verse 17, to restore the city of Jerusalem, verse 18, and to restore his people from their captivity, verse 19. Now, immediately when Daniel begins praying, God dispatches the angel Gabriel to answer Daniel's prayer. And so, beginning in verse 20, Daniel receives the answer to his prayer. Now, the previous visions had spoken about the, 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 what we're calling the, the, time, the, the uh, uh, times of the Gentiles, and it had spoken in some detail, but it was still in rather broad terms. The answer that Daniel receives here uh, speaks with some amazing precision. So there's more detail given in response to Daniel's prayer that, that includes an amazing glimpse into the future of his people in verse beginning in verse 24, and includes what is, what is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24 through 27, is probably one of the most dense sections of, of biblical prophecy speaking about the nation of Israel that you will find anywhere in the Bible. It has incredible uh, revelation for us. We don't have time this morning to to work it all out. It would be multiple sermons. But know this, verse 26, it says, And after 62 weeks, and when it talks about weeks, it's talking about weeks of years. Okay? So each week is a year in this prophecy. So it says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, and desolations are determined. So Daniel says, Following the cutting off of Messiah, the city and the sanctuary, that is the temple, will be destroyed, and they will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Well, by benefit of, of uh, the rearview mirror here, we know that the temple and the sanctuary was destroyed by whom? By the Romans. So they are the people who destroyed the, the sanctuary and the temple. Therefore, we can be very, very confident in saying that the prince who is to come comes from this Roman Empire. He, he comes back up out of the Roman Empire. So who is he? Well, he's the little horn from chapter 7. He is the, the iron legs and feet from chapter 2. Specifically, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. He is the prince who is to come, the little horn. Verse 27, the prophecy leaps forward in time. It moves from A.D. 70 in verse 26 all the way into the future to a time not yet here. Not yet here. Now, you remember we spoke a few weeks ago about prophetic mountaintops. Do you remember those? The prophetic mountaintops. There's one event, another event, when they're imposed, superimposed one on top of the other. It looks like they're next to each other, but there could be a very big valley between them. There is a large valley here. So verse 27, And he, who's the he, the antecedent to the he, is the prince who is to come. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that is for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. 
So this one, this prince who is, who is to come, this one who has arisen out of the Roman Empire, will make a firm covenant, it says. And the word firm here is, is an interesting Hebrew verb. It has, the, it has the idea that he will impose a covenant upon the Jewish people. He will force it upon them. And halfway through that, that, uh, that peace treaty, he will violate its terms. He will break the covenant and he will abolish Jewish sacrifice, it says, and commit what is called here the abomination which makes desolate. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Again, just turn over there real quick so you can kind of get this down in your mind. We know this is the one that Jesus is talking about. Because as Jesus begins to talk more about this in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 24, he says that, it is, uh, that there will be a period here that has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He speaks of the fact that it is a very unique time, a very unique time. Daniel speaks of it as a very unique time as well, because when you get to Daniel chapter 12, and I guess I probably should have said this earlier, but Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. Okay? But you get to Daniel chapter 12, and he says in verse 1, in the middle of the verse, he says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since, the nation, since there was a nation until that time. So so Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus chapter 24, and uh, verse uh, whatever that was, 21, I guess it was. Was it 21? No, it wasn't 21. What was it? Got to get this right now. Uh, yeah, it was 21. Are both speaking about the same event. This abomination that causes desolation, this future event when the temple in Jerusalem will be defiled. Pictured in chapter 8 and the historic defiling of the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes in 167. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 refers to the same event and he says that the Antichrist, that is the little horn, is the Antichrist, he will enter into the temple in Jerusalem, will declare himself to be God and will require everyone to worship him. Revelation chapter 13 beginning in verse 8 to 18 speaks of the similar event and it says there that everyone will be required to take the sign of the beast and the sign is 666 okay so it's all talking about the same thing now immediately you're scratching your head or should be scratching your head and saying how can he enter into the temple in Jerusalem because there is no temple in Jerusalem and that is an interesting question and I would only speculate in this way for you is I would suggest that, the, that part of the terms of the covenant that the Antichrist imposes upon the people of Israel in Daniel 9 and 27 includes, as, as part of this peace treaty, the, the, uh, the ability for them to reconstruct their temple. Now, how does that happen when you have the Dome of the Rock and, you know, in that place? I don't know. I don't know how you have the Dome of the Rock and the, and the Temple of Israel occupy the same, you know, uh, space and time. 
I'm not sure. But evidently, that's what happens. That's what happens. Now, I think I misspoke here a moment ago when I said 9. No, I said 10, 11, and 12 are all the same, didn't I? Did I say that? Okay, good. Then I didn't misspeak. All right, chapter 10. This occurs in the third year of the reign of Cyrus. It's 536 B.C., third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And two years earlier, the Jewish exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel had begun to return to the homeland, according to Ezra chapter 1, and begin to rebuild the city, the temple. So the, the captivity of Israel has ended. So you would think that everything's good, right? The 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah are over. The people are returning to the land under the decree by Cyrus. They can rebuild their city and everything looks like it's going to be hunky-dory. But Daniel sees this vision in chapter 10 that absolutely terrifies him. So in the midst of what ought to be peace and prosperity, and by this time, uh, uh, Daniel is 85 years old. So you would think at 85 years old, you could just, you know, fold your hands, take a place on a rocking chair, and live out the rest of your days in peace. But it can't. He receives a vision here that is so horrifying that it, that it absolutely undoes him. In fact, according to verses 2 and 3, after he sees his vision, he is in mourning and fasting for three whole weeks. It so unnerves him what he sees that he has to fast and pray and mourn for a period of three weeks. So what is it he sees in chapter 10? What he sees in chapter 10 is a period of continual conflict for his people Israel. Continual conflict. That conflict is, uh, is detailed in chapter 11. So chapter 10 is sort of the overview of it. It's going to be nothing but conflict for my people. Yeah, you get to, we get to go back in our land. You would think we could have peace, but we're not going to have peace. We're just going to continue to be persecuted and driven from one place to another you know, for the next many, many hundreds of years. Daniel sees his vision. Look at verse 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. You get an idea. He is absolutely overwhelmed by what he sees. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he stood, uh, when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said, Do not be afraid. And then this angelic being uh, gives him the vision of chapter 11 in detail of the future of the nation of Israel. And it speaks of the persecution that is going to come to them during what we essentially call the silent years, the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. It's a vision of the history of Israel under the Persian and Greek empires. 
But then something interesting happens in verse 36 of chapter 11. The vision vaults forward into the future. It moves from the, from the near mountaintop into a future mountaintop and continues to speak there about a king who is to come, who will do whatever he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will speak monstrous, monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And then it goes on to speak about this coming one. Who is this coming one? He is the little horn from chapter 7 and verse 8. He is the, he is the leader of the ten tribe or the ten nation confederation. He is the, he is the fulfillment of the, of the, of the iron uh, uh, feet that are the ten toes. He is what Paul calls, what John calls the Antichrist. He is the one who is spoken of in Revelation who is to come. His kingdom will come to an end by the coming of Messiah's kingdom. Back to chapter 2, right? The stone will crush him. And so what Daniel sees here, and then Daniel chapter 12, let me just say it this way. He says, there will be a time of distress, verse 1, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book of life, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then he goes on and he talks about verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, and you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So what Daniel sees here is the persecution of the nation of Israel under the little horn, under the Antichrist, whose kingdom is finally destroyed by the coming of Messiah's kingdom, at which point there is a resurrection for the nation of Israel. Those who are righteous into eternal life and enter into Messiah's kingdom. Those who are unrighteous, they, have a, they await a, a resurrection unto judgment. And Daniel, go your way. You're at the end of your life. Die in peace, and you will be raised someday. So Daniel has now given this, this grand sweep of prophecy for the entire times of the Gentiles from beginning to end. All right. We have a couple of minutes left, so what do we do with all of this? Let me suggest a few takeaways for you. I'm going to turn you to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6. And we'll come back and look at this next week now. I, I, hopefully it'll make more sense. Jesus says, you will, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. And this is the expression I want you to key in on. For those things must take place place. For those things must take place. The, the, the verb used here is, is the verb that, that indicates God's sovereignty. These things must happen under the sovereign rule of God. Daniel, all that you have seen is the playing out of world history. It is under the sovereign reign of God. Do not be afraid. These things must take place. They must take place. And beloved, we're in a great position, aren't we? We look back and we can see historically the, the rise and the fall of every one of those empires exactly the way Daniel said it would. And so we, we know 
that the end is going to come just the way Daniel said, just the way Jesus says. God is sovereign over it all. That's number one. Number two, evil will not prevail. Evil will not prevail. And many times it looks like it's winning, doesn't it? It looks like the kingdoms of this world are, are, are in the ascendancy. The, those that shake their fist in the face of God seem to be in, in the highest positions in the world. But Messiah's kingdom will come. And when it comes, it will crush the kingdoms of this world. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. The stone cut without hands will crush the statue. All of these world empires, including the greatest and and most brutal of them all, Antichrist empire, will be crushed by the coming of Messiah. And that leads me to my fourth or third application point, which is essentially this. Whose side are you on? Whose kingdom are you part of? Are you part of the kingdom of man? living in rebellion against God, appearing to have today the upper hand. Life is good. Where is your God? Where is your God? Are you part of the kingdom of Messiah? Are you part of the kingdom of Messiah? Are you living this life by faith, trusting that Messiah will come, he will fulfill his word? Willing to suffer now because the kingdom will come. Whose side are you on? And my mind can't help but go back to Joshua. The end of his life. The conquest of Canaan. Joshua's an old man now. He's about to die. And he calls together the tribes. And he says to them, It's time to choose. Whose kingdom are you part of? And he says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But for me and my house, fill it in for me. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Brother, this is where prophecy always takes you. Not to fulfill a curiosity factor, but to bring you to a place of decision. Whose kingdom are you part of? Who will you serve? Who will you serve? May God in his mercy and grace enable you to answer the question the right way. Our Father, thank you for your word. We have moved so very, very quickly this morning, and I pray, Father, that your spirit would make it plain for people. Father, as we read Daniel together this coming week, go back through this, may you help us to make the connections, make the linkages, to understand what's being said. And our confidence in the word of God would grow. And ultimately, our Father, that when we are faced with the decisions of life that will come to us, 
Some little and some small, but, but fundamentally always the same. Who will we serve? Whose kingdom are we part of? May you and your grace enable us to choose like Joshua to say that we will serve the Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.